This is the Inside Out Story Podcast, a place where we take you deep into the world of storytelling. Now, here are your hosts, John Booker and Jeremy Casper. Welcome to the Inside Out Story Podcast. I'm John Booker, and I'm interested in why we tell stories. And I'm Jeremy Casper, and I am interested in the how we tell stories. Jeremy, I was thinking about the other day, the very first character that I was ever taken with. I, I bet if I gave you three guesses, you would come up with it. Part of it is just the, the time and the generation that we're a part of. But Luke Skywalker absolutely caught my attention at a young age. So it wasn't and, Linda Carter, Wonder Woman? <laughs> <in the laughs> no. 70s? You know, and I, I'm always jealous of, and this is probably you, I'm probably jealous of you, but I'm always jealous of those kids who say, I wanted to be Han Solo. I played, you know, Han Solo growing up. I always played Luke Skywalker. I always wanted to be Luke Skywalker when I played with other kids. So um, I, I've been thinking a lot about, you know, why this week? Why is it that that character, you know, Luke Skywalker, um, had such a uh, uh, impact on me? And so, you know, in this session today, I'm going to let you play my psychologist, basically. <laughs> and I'm going to let you... I don't you... know how smart that is, John, but we'll, we'll go for it. All right, man. <laughs> well, I'm going to let you diagnose what what is it that little John Booker really <laughs> wanted uh, to to be when he saw Luke Skywalker on the screen. Fair enough. We'll give it a shot, and I'll just bill you later. <laughs> <laughs> so, John Booker, little John Booker. So, tell me about uh, playing Luke Skywalker <laughs> on the on the playground. What was it about Luke that uh, was so endearing to you? What drew you to wanting to be that character? You know, I know. You know, when you're a kid, there's something so great about uh, things not being confusing, things being simple. Uh, you know, there's so many things that do seem confusing to you. And as a kid, I remember thinking it's very clear that Luke Skywalker is good. He's on the good side. He's not on the bad side. He's a good guy. And they never had to tell me that Luke Skywalker is a good guy. And, you know, it's interesting when we when you think about... Um, what, what What's the first time we see Skywalker in A New Hope? Uh, it would be on the farm uh, when he's about ready to purchase the droids, I okay. guess. His uncle's about ready to purchase the droids. All right, so wait, why do we know he's a good guy? What is it that we, you know, see in him that we know he's a good guy? Is it the way he's dressed? Is it What is it about his character? Because it seems to me when we first see him, he's kind of flustered a little bit. Uh, the, the buying of the droids and in this foreign place, it, I don't think we see him at his best when we first see him. How do we know he's a good guy? Not at all. Yeah, and I think that part of the reason why is uh, so much of uh, what Lucas did in that film, and he's very transparent about this as well, uh, he uh, harkened back to ancient stereotypes when he was creating this, uh, this movie, Star Wars. And I think there's something sort of embedded in our psyche that when we see a, a story that's especially a story that's based on like Joseph Campbell's Hero's Journey, um, there are certain uh, identifying qualifications and characteristics that jump out at us and we immediately know, okay, this is the hero that we're dealing with now. Um, one of the main characteristics of a hero in the hero's journey is someone who uh, comes from very humble beginnings. Uh, 
And so up to this point, we've seen space battles. We've seen really tough guys battling it out. We've seen, um, uh, you know, uh, laser fights in space. We've seen, um, you know, these robots and droids trying to make it across a, a barren wasteland. And then suddenly this kid shows up. And I don't think we have to search very far deep into our psyches to say, hey, this kid is just like me. There's something about this kid that I'm drawn to. And there's something I think programmed in us that when we um, encounter that character in a film, that humble beginnings character um, that's enmeshed in this fantastical world, we know this, this everyday guy just like me, he's going to be the one that's going to go on and, and save the universe. Uh, so I think there were some just subtle things right off the very bat that, that are programmed into our minds that helped us see Luke Skywalker as the hero. You know, what's interesting is uh, guys like Blake Snyder talk about having a save the cat moment early on that causes us, you know, to to like the main character, to root for the protagonist. Um, before that ever occurs, though, it just occurred to me, I, I think we almost need to see our main character being a bit out of place, being a bit flustered, not having it all together. Um, just, I, I'm just wondering if we relate to that more. Um you know, the, I think so often when I create a story, I I want to put the character's best foot forward. I want to make the audience like that character by showing them how great this character is. When actually the, the smarter move is probably to show uh, that character not having their best day. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, one of the things that we tell our students often and, and most writing gurus you'll talk to uh, we'll talk about having that, you know, helping the old lady across the street moment or the save the cat moment. And it's that moment that endears us to the character. Um, but I think that, that, like you said, seeing the humanity, seeing the human side of a character is very important. Um, one thing, though, that I think is a mistake that sometimes writers can make is they can show the humanity of a character uh, but not completely understand why they're showing uh, the humanity of the character. Just to show your character as a weak character, as someone who's just like you and me, just for the sake of endearing the audience to that character, that's bad writing. Um, whatever it is that's, that's flawed or human about the character is actually going to play deeply into the story. And so oftentimes I will see writers who, they show me the humanity of the character right up front, but that specific aspect of that character that's broken, that flaw in that character that makes me like them, resonate with them and relate to them, they never do anything with that later on. So revealing your character's flaw up front, it's not just about showing us that they're human. It's part of the story. And I think that's a missed thing that a lot of writers do when they first start. So, so what I hear you saying is, if we're going to start this story on the most important day of this character's life, which a lot of story gurus would say, you know, be, begin this story on uh, with the catalyst that's the, the day everything changed, the day everything for that character was different. Mm -hmm. if we're going to begin this, this character's journey on that day. However they react or respond to that event, it needs to in some way be compelling to the audience. Even if they don't respond well or positively, we need to create some empathy for that character to say, wow, even though they responded you know, poorly to that, I kind of get it. I understand. I've been in that situation too. Um, is that, do you think that's the way to go? I think that's definitely part of it. Um, you know, I, one of the things that a lot of writers think they do really well is they think they're really good at writing first acts. If you, act a lot, if you ask a lot of writers, what's your favorite part of a story to write? 
uh, they'll always say, I love writing the first act. I love setting everything up. And how many scripts have you read, John, where the first act seems strong, but then everything falls apart later on? And the truth is, if everything falls apart later on, you actually wrote a really bad first act as well. The better question would be, how many scripts have I written that were just like that? Not how <laughs> Very many true. have I read. Absolutely, yes. <laughs> to, to be fair, yeah. Um, and, and you know as well as I do, most scripts fall apart about two-thirds the way through. And usually that's because you didn't write a good first act. And a lot of the reason why is because a lot of those things that seem like you've set up really well, you actually chose randomly. And when you set them up at the beginning, we assume, oh, you're going to do something with this. I can't wait to see what you do with it. So we accept a lot of randomness, at the, of seemingly random, randomness at the beginning of a story. A character with this specific inter internal problem, a character with this goal, this relationship, that sort of thing that they need to overcome. Setting that stuff up is, is easy. Paying it off is a little bit more difficult. Um, so I think seeing a character at the beginning of the film uh, re react humanly to this important thing that's happened, uh, this catalyst moment on the most important day in their life, it's very important that we see that. And that's a great way to show their humanity. Just make sure that their response, you understand why they're responding that way as an author, as a writer, and make sure you deal with that later on in the film. So if they respond in fear, then you're gonna have to deal with this character's fear later on in the story. If they, um, if they uh, uh, react to it with, um, just sort of, uh, you know, brazen, blinded, you know, uh, just reckless abandonment, that can be a problem. You're going to have to deal with that later on. So how your character responds to that catalyst moment, the very specific way they respond, it's important. Um, and, and so don't, don't choose that randomly. I have to ask you a very potentially awkward question sure. here. <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll see where this goes. Who's counselor now? <laughs> uh, have you seen the Pixar film Inside Out? I did. Me uh, well, too. I well, loved it. I loved it. <laughs> what at least I could see through all the sobbing and the tears. Yes, I, I did. I did see that film. I thought it was a beautiful film. I loved it. Yeah, I found out they they actually offer uh, some minor counseling services at the concession stand uh, uh, during that film. Uh, not that I would know. It, it's interesting. At the beginning of that film, would you agree that Joy is the main character or protagonist in that film? Absolutely. Yes. Okay. So it's interesting at the beginning of that film, the first interaction she has with the character of Sadness. Because when Sadness does something or touches something, she, she kind of tries to isolate Sadness and put Sadness over in a corner, draw a circle and say, don't, don't get out of that area. And she's very polite about it. But then when she walks away, she kind of rolls her eyes like, I don't, you know, I don't want to deal with this other character. Of course, it is that... Um, that decision that she, uh, by the end of the film, has changed her mind about, and that she has learned, and we see kind of the theme of the film emerge, you know, through uh, her her change in her attitude towards sadness. But in that initial interaction that she has with sadness, I think it's interesting because we see her actually respond poorly to sadness. We see her kind of, in a sense, make a bad decision. 
But actually, we relate to that decision because we haven't went on this journey of the film in our initial uh, responses. Yeah, let's put sadness in the corner. We kind of agree with her on that. And I think some of the brilliance of that film is that over the course of the story, they actually cause us to change our mind about sadness. At the same time, Joy is changing her mind about sadness. And to me... That is the ideal way to go, is if we can show the the humanity or vulnerability of the character uh, at the very beginning and have the audience kind of on board with it so that the audience then cannot hold judgment towards the character and say, well, they need to learn this lesson, but in a sense have the audience learn the lesson over the course of the story as well. Absolutely. And um, again, absolutely love the movie Inside Out. Um, you know, I think one thing, though, that the film does very well, too, is that that internal problem that Joy has at the beginning of the film, this this problem of wanting to relegate sadness into her corner. Uh, I completely agree with you. It's it's a moment that we as the audience, too, are kind of like, yeah, sadness, you know, quit raining on the parade. We've got lots of happiness going on here. Don't mess things up. Um, but even in that moment, I still think that probably there is a sense in the audience that that might not have been the best thing to do. We like the decision, like on the surface we resonate with it, but I think there is something deeper uh, that happens in that moment that even though we like it, we sense that there's a little bit of a brokenness to this this moral argument, if you will. And I think that, I, I don't think audiences are even aware of that though, at the beginning of the film. Uh, but I think that once we get to the end of the film, most audiences would say, yes, this is what should have happened from the very beginning. There's a sense that that we arrive somewhere that the audience was told at the beginning of the film. They were told the destination at the beginning of the film. And once we got there, it felt very resonant and felt very complete. So it showed Joy's humanity, but it also subconsciously told the audience, this is the internal problem we're going to deal with through the course of this film. Yeah, it's really interesting. I, I think... Um, until that point, you know, we get information about this character of Joy, and they do <laughs> they do it in a way that is very efficient, but that's very controversial among scriptwriters and storytellers. And that is, they have our main character give us this voiceover to build up all the backstory of what's happened up to this point. Um, Let's talk for a minute, Jeremy, about different ways to establish a character. Uh, and voiceover can be one of them. You know, that's a, a valid tool. Uh, you and I, you know, recognize when voiceover is a crutch, but we're we're not people who are just going to knock voiceover off the table uh, just because we've heard that's a rule. It, only when it is distracting from the story, when it's taking the audience out, is it a problem. However, uh, most new writers don't know how to use it effectively. I think we would both agree. But let's talk for a minute. How do we go about establishing character? Again, with Joy, they establish it through this voiceover. She tells the story of everything that's happened up to this point. We get there efficiently and quickly. That's valid, but it seems to me that that's not going to work in every story. What do you think? Yeah, I think you're right. Um, and just to reiterate, I am not opposed to voiceover either when it's done effectively. Uh, another film um, that, that uses voiceover very effectively to establish a lot of information at the beginning is uh, How to Train Your Dragon. Uh, in the first seven minutes of that film, we know who the main character is. We know 
we know every single character, main character in the film. Uh, we know even a little bit about the emotional struggle of the main character. We know who the antagonist is going to be. Uh, and it's all done very efficiently through voiceovers. So just to say, yes, that is definitely a way to do it if you are skilled at it and you know what you're doing. But I think that the best way to to, uh, to reveal character is by um, putting your character in situations where they have to react and respond. Um, one mistake I think a lot of beginning writers make is they intentionally write a scene for the sole purpose of establishing character. And that's actually really bad writing. You're wasting narrative time when you do that. So even when you are establishing character, your story and the narrative and the objectives of the film should still be moving forward. Um, but usually we learn about a person in real life by how they respond and react to things. Uh, I don't really know a person when they just tell me what they believe and their, their um, convictions about things in life. Uh, what proves that is how they respond to things in life. Um, so if we need to know that your character struggles with fear, if that's something we need to establish at the beginning of the story, then put your character in a situation where they are going to be afraid. Uh, don't have them just spurt out that they're afraid or someone else come in and say, oh, remember that time you were afraid. Um, but I think the way characters respond and react to situations, um, preferably how they respond and react to situations cinematically. Um, so if you can do it without just using dialogue, uh, without just characters spewing out their moral arguments, but put them in situations where they physically have to react to something that reveals who they really are, that's a, a cinematic and very effective way to establish character. You know, I'm curious to hear what you would think about um, what I know to be one of your favorite films of all time, uh, Silence of the Lambs. Mm -hmm. um, because the character of Clarice Starling... Um, we really don't get her backstory until way late in the film. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, yeah. it's uh, towards the end of the second act, I think, uh, maybe even into the third act before we actually really understand who she is and why she does what she does. Yeah. But it seems to me, as I recall, you know, um, the first couple of scenes, they do an amazing job of establishing her character. You know, I, I think the first time we see her, she's out running, you know, mm -hmm. on that course yeah. uh, uh, for the government. Um, but when she gets called into the office, just in that interaction with her boss, um, and then the next interaction with the guy that runs the prison, mm -hmm. um, it seems to me that they reveal a lot about her character just in those two scenes. Any Anything strike you off the top of your head? Yeah. From, from I, again, one of my favorite films of all time. I, I think it's one of the... <laughs> One of the last films that won Best Picture that really, really deserved it. I just think it's a brilliantly structured film. And I think one of the things that film does really well is keep in mind that it is a film that's combining genres. So it is it is a horror film and it is a drama. And it's, it's very strongly both of those things. So when you're combining genres, which we won't get into now, but... Um, you, you make sacrifices. There are certain things that you're going to have to forego. Uh, you can't follow every single rule of a horror film and every single rule of a drama, and they all work perfectly together. You're going to have to make some concessions. And so in the case of Silence of the Lambs, her backstory doesn't really come out until way late in the film. Um, but I think it really works well for two reasons. Number one, it adds incredible depth to a story that up to that point we kind of thought was just more of a horror film with some dramatic elements. But once we really started getting to the character, it brought depth 
to a play at a place in the film that we don't really necessarily expect depth to to come at. We expect that stuff more towards the beginning or the end of the film. So it added lots of layers at a really important, crucial time in the film. But also keep in mind that even though we didn't know Clarice's backstory at the beginning of the film, we did set up some internal struggles at the beginning. And what we established at the beginning was Clarice, Jodie Foster's character, is this this young female um, cadet who is trying to make it in a man's world. And um, Jonathan Demi did a great job of, of setting that up at the very beginning. Like you said, we see her running at the beginning of the film. If you've never seen the film and you're experiencing it for the first time, you don't know what she's running from. You don't know she's on a, a, a course at the FBI. Uh, she's just this girl running through the woods. It's creepy. It sets up a tone for the film. Uh, and then very shortly after that, she gets called into the office. And what's the first shot we see? She gets into an elevator and she's surrounded by all these men who are at least a foot taller than her. And it's just visually establishing right now, this is the internal stuff this woman is dealing with. It's external too, and just the fact she's trying to survive in this, this you know boys club. Uh, but we get that feeling just by that one image of her standing inside that uh, inside that, that elevator. So I think right there, that's already enough internally to get me interested in this girl's story. It's like, I, I want to see what she does in this situation. How is she going to overcome this? And so once we get to the part of the story where she starts talking about her her childhood and, and the screaming lambs, that just begins to explain so much of her and add so much more depth. Um, but we still got something at the beginning that uh, endeared us to this character. You know, speaking of, um, you know, female characters in that exact same circumstance, uh, I'm reminded of Dorothy Gale in The Wizard of Oz, because when we first meet Dorothy, we're really seeing how she doesn't fit into the world, which is sort of a boys club. You know, she lives on this farm with these guys who are these pseudo uncle, you know, type characters. And she um, keeps getting in the way. She she just doesn't fit in, which is kind of what, um, you know, motivates her to run away from home and what, what sends this character on her journey. I, I think it's well worth looking at the fact that that was a much smarter choice on the part of the storytellers as opposed to having her set on a log and talk to Toto and say, Toto, I just don't fit into this right. world. Because how many times have we read scripts that that's exactly what happens? Yeah. If you go back and watch Wizard of Oz, which I encourage you to do from a story perspective, uh, one of the brilliant things about that story is once you know the full story and you watch the first 20 minutes of the film, you realize not one single line of dialogue is wasted. There's not one single beat in that story that isn't important. When you watch it for the first time, it's just like, oh, I'm just watching this girl in Kansas, and she's just, uh, she's young, she's just, this is kind of a, maybe a coming-of-age story, she doesn't know where she fits in, nobody likes her. Uh, but every single thing that's being said is, is setting up something that's going to be paid off later. It's a brilliantly structured first act of a, of a story. Um, but yeah, you're right. The things that we saw her do, she was responding and reacting to situations. She's getting in the way. Um, you know, she tries to help out, but her help doesn't seem to be of any help. Um, and, and we resonate with it. It's something that we identify with quickly. And I think that's something important too, John, to talk about as well, uh, to talk about the universality, the universality of um, uh, internal struggles. And if you're a first-time writer, if you're just getting started, especially if you're doing short films, 
um, I really encourage our students to, to stick with internal themes that are universal, uh, things that don't require a whole lot of setup. I don't need to see Dorothy in Kansas for very long to completely understand and be able to identify and resonate with what she's going through. Um, now in dramas, a lot of times uh, internal struggles are a lot more complex and they do take a little bit more time to develop and explain and understand. In fact, sometimes we may not even fully understand that internal struggle until the end. Uh, but if you're, if you're telling any kind of story that's not just a drama, if there's any other kind of uh, genre involved, if it's an action film, a comedy, whatever, you probably want to keep your internal themes a little bit more on the universal side of things. You know, I, let's let's continue with that because I, I think whenever I think about universal themes and universal archetypes, I always go back to Joseph Campbell, who you mentioned earlier. And Campbell talks about that our protagonist, uh, in, in setting up any good story, our protagonist is going to have to leave the tribe. That protagonist has to, in order to leave the tribe, have some sort of dissatisfaction with the tribe in order to go out on any journey. Now it may be there there's kind of a an alternate version of that story where actually the person is causing the tribe dissatisfaction and they throw that person out into the woods to go on a journey. Um, but most of the time uh, our protagonist senses some sort of dissatisfaction that happens internally, we will often see them go and consult an older member of the tribe, some sort of uh, uh, wise man or wise woman over the tribe. And we actually see this in both of those stories we just talked about, Wizard of Oz and Silence of the Lambs. Dorothy Gale goes and consults with uh, Professor Marvel. Uh, who's kind of this wise old leader of the tribe. And she, you know, kind of lays out her problems of, I don't feel like I'm uh, appreciated or accepted here in the tribe. And in his wisdom, he actually tells her to go back home. <laughs> now, you know, good story revolves around conflict. And oftentimes uh, the uh, protagonist is not going to accept that good advice of, uh, the uh, the wise old sage, and they're going to go out on their own journey. And then by the end of the story, they end up doing exactly what the wise old sage told them uh, to do. We we even see this in Silence of the Lambs, and you may want to pick up on this. Um, but you know, I seem to remember um, she's having a conversation with one of the fellow cadets early on. There's an African American woman she's having a conversation with. And we're, we're getting a sense of that dissatisfaction with the tribe, but where it really hits home is when she goes to her boss, mm -hmm. who is the old wise sage. Mm -hmm. And really what her boss tells her in that moment is kind of what she ends up doing <laughs> at the yeah. end. These Wizard of Oz and Silence of the Lambs, um, in some ways, from a hero's journey perspective, structured very, very similar. Very similarly, yeah. You, and you wouldn't necessarily compare those two films to each other, but uh, but they they share remarkable similarities. Um, you know, one thing, just uh, just on a side note too, John, I think is really interesting uh, with the Wizard of Oz. Let's just say for a moment that this whole story did not take place on the day of a of a big thunderstorm, of a big tornado. There's a good chance Dorothy would have gone home. And that would have been it. Wow. I've never thought about that, but that's a that's a really good point. And she wouldn't have really she would have done what she was told, but she wouldn't have learned it for herself. 
And so if this is a, a perfect example of sometimes how you as the writer, you are manufacturing things. You are forcing your character into situations where they have to learn. So really, at the beginning of the story, in a sense, Dorothy is told everything she's needed to, to, she needs to know. Um, but she hasn't learned it. Yeah, It's not in her heart. Yeah. So she's got the information. She's got to go on a journey to transplant it from her head to her heart. And so what do we do? We, we ride in a tornado and we, we whisk her away to some magical land uh, where she meets a scarecrow and a tin man and a lion and there's monkeys that fly around and witches. And, and she has to come to that realization on her own. And once she gets to that place where she finally understands what's broken inside of her, and she's like, oh, this is the lesson. This is what I needed to learn. Um, then the story is ready to end, uh, but not until that point. Mm. Um, so I, I'm not sure exactly what the, the, the parallel would be for that with uh, uh, Silence of the Lambs. Um, but always just keep in mind that even when your character is given information, the right information at the beginning of the story, they can't really know that that's their answer. If they know that's their answer, story's over. Uh, so at the beginning, even though uh, Professor Marvel is telling her to, you know, head off to home and, and just go back because, you know, I'm seeing your aunt and she's she's sick and she's lonely and I know what's going to happen. You better run back to her. And even Dorothy leaves and goes, I'm going to go back to her. She still doesn't know that that's what's best for her. Um, so, again, it's not until she goes on the journey that she knows that. You know, I, I wonder in Silence of the Lambs if Clarice Starling's uh, tornado actually happens near the end of the film mm -hmm. uh, rather than early on. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, if her lesson is you, you've you got to deal with, you know, your past and your pain head on mm -hmm. and you've got to confront it. She actually, you know, doesn't do that until... You know, much uh, much later, you know, in the film, when mm -hmm. Hannibal Lecter forces her to do it, and in a sense, maybe Hannibal Lecter is her tornado. In a sense, yeah, and, and maybe sort of a slow burning tornado, yeah. because really, even in their first meeting, you know, there's they have the whole, um, you know, is it kind of the uh, uh, you share, I share yeah. kind of thing. So you give me information, I'll give you information. So Clarice is, is set up at the beginning of the film, even though she doesn't really care, she doesn't buy into it, she's told the rules right up front. Yeah. You give, I give. I'm going to ask hard questions, and then I will give you the information that you want. Uh, and that builds over the whole course of the film, which, again, I think is just a brilliant brilliant way of structuring it. I do think, um, and, and we won't necessarily go into this now, You know, the character of Hannibal is such a fascinating, interesting character. And, you know, we talk about, uh, for example, the director of the FBI sort of being this kind of mentor character. But in an odd sense, so is Hannibal. He's very much a mentor character in this film as well. He's not the antagonist, which a lot of people think that he is. Um, he's not the central bad guy in the story. Um, in some odd, twisted way, he is kind of what Clarice needs. Hmm. Um, so, again, just a, a, a really fascinating, brilliant bit of writing uh, great character development in that story. You know, let, let's talk about something there that, that troubles me often as a writer. Um, Hannibal Lecter, I think unquestionably the most interesting character mm -hmm. in this film. Yeah. Not the protagonist, not the antagonist. Uh, the Godfather. Mm -hmm. Marlon Brando's character, by far the most interesting character in the film. I mean, these are the characters that make the movie poster. Right. You know, these are the characters that get TV spinoffs. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but they're not, you know, so 
oftentimes I've found myself trying to be careful not to make some other character outside of my protagonist more interesting than my protagonist. Mm, yeah. So, you know, but we here we see examples of characters that are more interesting than the protagonist, um, you know, playing vital roles and being very necessary. Uh, but it seems to me that that's a fine line to walk. So how do we walk that line? How do we include characters that might be more interesting than our protagonist uh, or antagonist, for that matter, and, and not lose the story where the story becomes their story? Yeah. Well, I think that genre does play a big role in that. I mean, think about every single Disney villain. Mm. They're always the most cinematic character. Yeah. They're always the most fascinating character to watch. And I think that part of the reason why maybe that works, and I'm just I'm just theorizing here, John, but uh, it, it's very important that we actually can understand to a degree where the the bad guy's coming from. And I think again, depending on the genre, uh, uh, that affects how how true that really is. For example, in a drama, just a pure drama about family members fighting with each other, there's a good chance your antagonist is going to have a moral argument that I really agree with. I don't understand. I don't agree with how they're dealing with it, uh, but it's a very strong argument. I understand why they're doing what they're doing. I believe it's wrong, but it makes sense, and that's going to cause me to you know uh, be interested in the story that's taking place. Um, again, just sort of theorizing, I think sometimes, you know, when you're dealing with, uh, you know, fantastical stories, oftentimes the villains in those stories are so pure evil that it's very hard for an audience member to, for one moment, even think that what they're doing is right or good or okay. Um, and I think possibly one way to sort of combat that is, well, then let's find ways, though, to make this character someone you just can't take your eyes off of. Um, Hannibal Lecter is a disgusting human being. Uh, but man, his arguments are polished and they're interesting and they're fascinating. And just the way he presents himself to the world, so, so interesting. And in those few moments where we get to see this really peaceful man lash out and become the monster he really is, he's just, he's just that uh, kind of that, that, that train wreck you can't take your eyes off of. Um, I, I think that regardless of how interesting the characters are around the main character, um, you just want to make sure that we are identifying with the internal struggle, the internal journey of the main character. And if you've roped me in there and I'm, I'm saying, man, this character's a lot like me, then I can't wait to see what they're going to do when they come up against something fantastical, something that's bigger than them, something more interesting than them. Frodo is a tiny little hobbit. Nothing very interesting about him. He's, I mean, in the world of Middle-earth, the hobbits are probably some of the most boring people. They just eat and drink and read books and have parties. <laughs> That's about all they do and grow things. Um, you so, say it like it's a bad <laughs> So why, though, are we so endeared to Frodo? And he's going up against some really fantastical... I'd say almost every other character in the film cinematically is more interesting than Frodo. Um, but we never, ever lose sight of his journey because we are so embedded in his heart and he's such a part of us um it is a fine line a fine line to follow um but uh yeah it's and something always, to consider i always thought it was frodo's feet i learned something <laughs> um you know i'm reminded just as you talk about uh those things there's a type of story called a fable and most of us are familiar with fables, you know, like the, the tortoise and the hare. 
And one of the more interesting things when you look at the story structure of a fable is that um, there's always two characters in a fable, and and they're kind of two extremes, uh, like the tortoise and the hare. And those two characters are always meant to represent two different sides of us. It's mm-hmm. never meant to, right. to, to symbolize a person who is lazy and a person who is efficient or a person who's fast and a person who's slow. It's always meant to be read as, wow, there's a slow side of me and a fast side of me. There's a lazy side of me and an efficient side of me. And as I hear you talking about these characters, I'm reminded that in a great story, I don't know that any of the characters should be completely unrelatable. Even a Hannibal Lecter, as you mentioned, has a bit of a moral argument. If it came down to it, I'm kind of okay with Hannibal Lecter um, taking out Buffalo Bill. Right. You know, right. I, I'm. I'm. Uh, his methods may differ from mine, um, but I, I'm kind of okay with you know Hannibal Lecter being who he is in, in order to take out uh, another evil. You know, the, there's there's sides of ourselves that we do not like to acknowledge. Um, that somehow when we see that side of ourselves in characters, we can sort of deal with that in a way that we don't have to publicly discuss it and i i think that is you know the 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 character of hannibal lecter has become so popular now you know there's Mm -hmm. tv shows this tv show hannibal all sorts of spinoffs and there's something about that character that really really connects to people yeah yeah and i think that just in general i'd say in the last 10 15 years the anti-hero you know has become so popular in culture and and that's nothing new that's that is a pendulum that swings back and forth and has since the beginning of time. You know, there are there are seasons where we really fully resonate with, you know, the Supermans. Uh, but then there are the times where we resonate with the Batmans um, or the Dexters uh, or the Robin Hoods. Um, and we right now, I think just because of the political climate, uh, the socioeconomic climate, I think that we are we're cynical. This is a cynical time in society. And so I think right now, any character that is presented to audiences as the main character, but is somehow um, bucking the system, uh, we kind of like that. Yeah. And, and we're interested to hear what they have to say because we know they probably have a unique perspective, even if we don't like what they do. I mean, Dexter was a serial killer, you know, but how did they do that? How did they make a serial killer someone that we actually liked? And we wanted to get to know. And we, we actually found ourselves rooting for him. He had no cynicism. There was no gray there. It was, yeah. it was very black and white, you know, good and evil. He tells you right up front, I'm evil. I'm yeah. a bad guy. Yeah. But I still have my own moral code. And my moral code actually aligns with a lot of yours. Yeah. It kind of brings us right back to Luke Skywalker. And what I loved about Luke Skywalker as a kid, in some sense... As a kid, I saw Han Solo, and I love Han Solo, don't get me wrong, (laughs) but as a kid, I saw him as being more cynical. That's kind of his character, is this, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, cynical character who um, has a a looser, more gray moral code. He he will run 
uh, cargo for the Empire, and he'll, you know, do stuff for the Rebels as well. Um, but Luke Skywalker is a kid, at least for me. It was very black and white. Yeah. He, there was no gray in Luke Skywalker. Yeah. Um, and I think that lack of cynicism or lack of nuance where I was at in my life at the time really appealed to me because as a child, you know, that made a lot of sense to me. As we get older and as culture shift and change and grow, I think we, from time to time, become very, very big fans of nuance and cynicism. Yeah. And we saw that in characters for a mm-hmm. while. You saw, you had like, even on television, you had your Fraser Cranes and, you know, these these characters that were great at just kind of spouting off one-liners of cynicism. They never really liked or disliked anything. Everything was just stupid to them. Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, I think we're kind of coming out of that a little mm-hmm. bit. Um, and I think, you know, characters like... Uh, Dexter um, uh, we're we're ushering in the kind of this new age of really black and white you know yeah. characters uh, true detective you know uh, all those characters are bad guys yeah everybody's bad guys yeah. uh, so you know I, I, I think you're, you're really on to something with as culture shifts and ebbs and flows um, what we connect to in a character also changes yeah yeah, and I think that with with all writing, and and this is a, sort of my own worldview coming to the table, but you know I firmly believe in being a responsible writer um, and not writing things just for the sake of writing. Not me, man. I love <laughs> to be an irresponsible writer. I'm kidding. But uh, you know, so many of these antiheroes that we're talking about, even though they're they're the bad guy, never once do I walk away, you know, from a show like Dexter and think it's okay to kill somebody. You know, never do I walk away from, uh, you know, watching a story about Robin Hood and think that it's okay to go break into the mansion next door and steal everything from this guy and give it to the poor people. Um, I, I don't, I don't, I don't, I'm not inspired to do those things. So even in these stories where, you know, we have an anti-hero, someone who technically is the bad guy, uh, there's still something, there's still something good, something moral that's being said about society uh, or something that's bad about society that really makes us stop and think about it. Um, and and, and in most of the, the characters we're talking about, I, I see that you know happening in those characters. Well, yeah, I mean the the king of the antiheroes is Walter White. Yes. And in Breaking Bad, it, it's really an exploration of how far would you go to take care of your family. Exactly. And, yeah. and to me, that's what um, that's what becomes interesting about these characters is when we can pose those sort of really hard questions to them. Absolutely. How far would you go? Yeah. And if you think about it, the, the anti-heroes that we're talking about, almost every single one of them, they actually have some decent, good moral argument behind doing what they're doing. Um, Batman is, you know, vigilante justice, but it's still justice. Uh, Dexter, he's a serial killer, but he's decided to only kill people who've also killed people and, and got away with it, you know. Um, same with Walter White. As, as crooked and corrupt as that man is throughout the whole story, you hate and loathe him, you know, at times during that, se- that, that, that series. At the end of the day, just like you said, the thing that keeps that story going is he does want to provide for his family. It gets completely out of hand, but that's still this underlying motivation. And he's got all kinds of other problems that come into it, his need for power and all that. But... Uh, but he is uh, he is definitely a man who still wants to uh... <laughs> and... 
that's uh, the uh, the signal that lets us know that uh, the uh, the end of the podcast is coming up. <laughs> no. That was subtle. <laughs> yeah. uh, no, but um, you're exactly right, and I I think you know in the case of Walter White, he does actually. Um, you know, at the end of the show says, yeah, that's how I started out. But right. then eventually it became about me. And and I think that that's a perfect example of how he had a strong moral argument that was flawed. Yeah. And in this case, the flaw took over. Yeah. And there's a lesson to be learned there. We started, and you know, I always look at every, I know we're not talking about antagonists here, but I look at every bad guy in a film is it, they're kind of a character who at one point in their life, they went on the hero's journey and they failed. Yeah. They never learned the thing that they were supposed to learn. And so that brokenness has stayed with them for their whole lives. And it fuels everything that they do. Yeah. So. Well, and I I think, you know, the other thing we see in Walter White is it gives us somewhere to go with that character's arc. Whether that's in the arc of a, a whole season of television or whether that's in the arc of a feature film, it, it's interesting uh, to to take something that is admirable about a character, like how far would they go to take care of their family, and then see that go south, see motivations change. Because to me, that's, that's a very human thing. I mean, how many of us start with uh, doing something with the best of intentions, and then by the time all is said and done, um, those intentions no longer play any role in what we do. I, I think we have to um, appreciate these things in characters because we see them in ourselves, even if it's on a subconscious level that most of us really don't acknowledge about ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, John, you know, we, we set off to talk about main character and we've just scratched the surface. Um, but I, you said something very important there that I think is is crucial for all beginning writers to to ask about their main character. And that is asking your main character, this question of your main character, how far is your main character willing to go? How far are they willing to go to accomplish their goal? And the answer to that question is going to determine so much about your story. And it's a question you need to answer. You need to have a really solid answer for. Um, We won't go into it now, but we do a whole exercise with our students in, in our classes where we have them ask that question of the characters they developed and it's amazing how if you change that answer how far your character is willing to go how dramatically your genre changes your story changes um so it's 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 a good question to have an answer to well let's wrap that up as part one of our talk on character and john i have no idea why you wanted to be luke skywalker as <laughs> as a little boy I'm, I'm i'm still working on it we'll we'll, we'll resume that with uh, session two <laughs> well you know with the new star wars films uh coming out i i think there's a chance for me to redefine myself uh and, and we'll see if i still want to be luke skywalker All right, well, we'll talk more about this after out. december then sounds good <laughs> sounds good this is the inside out story podcast thanks for Listening. For more information on the story, the host of the show, upcoming speaking engagements and seminars, visit our website at theinsideoutstory.com. The Inside Out Story podcast is a production of Sideshow Media Group.